So we continue through the book of 1 Timothy. I'd like you to think of 1 Timothy as if we had received this letter from the Apostle Paul. Because it was a letter that was meant to be read in churches, not just the church in Ephesus where Timothy served, but it was to be read in all churches. It was the Word of God. There's a lot of doctrinal correction that goes on in Timothy, but there's also some very practical instruction that goes on in Timothy. The purpose of the writing of the letter is stated in 1 Timothy 3.14. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And he tells Timothy that everything we do is done in love. Everything. So here Paul explains how people in the church, in this particular text, how people in the church should be cared and honored. He spent chapter 4 directing Timothy and how to be a good pastor and all pastors after him. And now he begins to focus on those who need special care in the church. I'll begin reading uh, for context in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11, and I'll read through verse 16 of chapter 5. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word as you are able? Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man But encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let the widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry 
and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you truly are a good shepherd. You are our Father. We are the sheep of your pasture. And as sheep, we need guidance. We need correction. We need training. And we know that all spiritual truth is spiritually understood, and we need you to open our eyes. We need you to penetrate our hearts with your word. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems that honoring, I was just thinking about how, how important it is to Paul that those who are elderly, those who are widows, disadvantaged in some way, be cared for. And honoring the elderly is certainly part of it. I think we would all agree that it's just part of how God has wired the human psyche. That we instinctively know we're to honor those who are old. It's in every culture around the world. And yet it seems to be coming on hard times today. There seems to be no distinction between young and old in many parts of our country even. I remember as a child watching the deference that my father and his father and all of my uncles and great uncles showed to my great-grandparents. They lived to be very old, and so I got to witness this. And I was always shocked and taken back when Grandpa or Great-Grandpa talked. Everyone stopped and listened. And these are my uncles. These are punks. You know, they beat up on me, and we played together. And, and yet when Great-Grandpa or Great-Grandmother talked, everyone stopped. When they stood up, they stood up. When they ask them a question, they stop what they're doing and look them in the eyes. And whenever they wanted anything done, would you please go do this? Would you please go do that? Without question. They got up and did it. And as a child, I just remember, I just knew that something was special about my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, for them to be treated in such a manner. And many of you I know have been taught a similar ethic. It's biblical, but it's also programmed into us. We know it's right when we see it. Why is that? Well, part of it is that these people have lived a long time. God has preserved them, and it's scriptural that we should honor those who are elderly. But it's also that they probably have a harder time doing the things they used to do when they were younger. And in this way, we see that we can... Uh, honor them by serving them as well, as we would serve widows, as we would serve our own families. 
So I don't mean that elderly people are all disadvantaged in the same way, but they're certainly not 25 years old anymore. I learn this almost weekly. My body knows that it's not 25, but my mind still thinks that it is. And I hurt myself frequently because my brain just tells me that, oh, you can do that. That's no problem. The elderly, they know that they can't do it anymore. They've learned those lessons. So we care for them well. Now, all in the household of God are called to love. We are the household of God, Paul says. From elders to deacons, from old to young, men and women, rich and poor, healthy and sick, we're called to love each other in this church as family, the household of God, with an uncommon love that's foreign to the world. This is how we behave in the household of God, Paul said. When we love others and love God, it starts here. This is where it starts. And Paul has already instructed in the previous parts of this letter kind of how this should look. We pray for everyone. We value sound doctrine. We choose good leaders who are committed to God. We, we're sensitive to false teachers and we don't follow them. And he says that Timothy should love the congregation by telling them the truth and guard his life and doctrine. And I started with verse 11 in chapter 4 because it seems very strong, doesn't it? That Timothy is to command and teach these things, to not let anyone despise him. But then when he begins to tell Timothy exactly how to do this in the church, it's as if Paul provides more context. And he says, okay, with an older man, it's, a, it's done with all gentleness, as if you're addressing a father. With older women, as if a mother. With your peers, as if brothers and sisters. The great love with, with which Tim, Timothy should correct and train and preach and teach should be evident to all because he views them as his own family in the household of God. So first, let's look at the church family. The church family. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. In the household of God, older men and women are mothers and fathers to us. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger sisters, younger women as sisters in all purity. So it's not, Timothy, don't rebuke old people, don't teach old people, don't preach to old people. Rather, to treat them with dignity, with gentleness, as fathers. And the word for older man is presbyturo. It's the same word that's used often for elder, an elder in the church, the office of elder. Obviously, and the use depends on context, obviously here, everyone agrees that Paul means just an old man, an older man. They should be gently corrected as fathers and older women as mothers. I think the application um, is worth mentioning. If you're a young person in this church and you're talking to someone who's old or you have an opportunity to teach or to be taught by someone who's older or to serve someone who is older, you should know that this pleases God, that you honor them, 
that you show them deference and respect. This is how many of us, if not all of us, were probably taught as children, regardless of wealth, status, color, position. If you're speaking to someone who's older than you, and it, it's almost like a scale, if the older they are, the more deference you show them, you should do that. That should be our general attitude. It's biblical. It's right. Especially among the household of God. Especially here. Give up your seat. Open the door. Stand up in their presence. Listen rather than talk. And I would also say to the elderly in this room and in the sound of my voice, it's okay to receive this honor. It's okay to be honored in this way. If it weren't appropriate to hear this in church, then it wouldn't be in the Scripture, but indeed it is. It's all over the Scriptures. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Notice that Paul also distinguishes older women as mothers. Peers as brothers and sisters. This is the household of God that Paul is discussing. And he also mentions a special concern for purity when ministering to women. So when you peel this back, you can only imagine, who knows, what specifically the false teachers have been doing to have Paul mention these particular things. We don't know. We know that the false teachers were adept at deceiving and it appears that women had been especially targeted by these false teachers to get power, to get money, to to get influence. But regardless, Timothy's commanded to teach these things. Verse 7, after talking about how to treat widows, he says, command these things as well. Command them. Those are strong words. But the command should be tempered by love, by the love of a family. So may we all, all of us, take a genuine interest in each other as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. These are all part of your spiritual family in Jesus Christ. And be assured, not one person is in this church randomly. Every one of you has been placed here by God. To be a blessing and to be blessed. Nothing happens apart from God's plan. So this gives us an occasion to pursue everyone in the church. And all churches are the same. We like the people we like. We talk to the people we talk to. Generally the people around us. The people we've known the longest. But we should invest time and energy in the whole body of Christ. These are your mothers and your fathers, your brothers and your sisters, your sons and daughters, Paul says. So pursue each other in love. Show deference to the elderly. We're a family. There's something thicker than blood that unites us. It's the Holy Spirit. Secondly, let's look at the care of widows. Again, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, And sometimes I go through these mental gyrations. Lord, am I really going to talk about caring for widows during a sermon? And the answer is yes. It's in the text. It's important. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So yes, we're going to talk about what the text 
tells us to talk about. And you might be surprised, like I was, that Paul spends 3 to 16, 13 verses discussing the care of widows. You might think, that's, that's a little excessive. He talks about elders in something like 8 verses. He talks about deacons in something like 7 or 8 verses. And now widows, 13 verses, a, a large chunk of this letter is spent discussing the care of widows. Why? Why is that? The early church seemed to have a lot of widows. The average lifespan for a man was much, much lower than it is today. And the gap between a woman and a man's lifetime was much higher than it is. I think today it's three years, 76 and 73 or something like that, 78 and 75. Back then it was not the, the same. And there were a lot of widows in the church. It was, a, it was a problem that had to be dealt with because many of these women needed support. Women in the Bible are always special objects of care and honor, protection. Is the weaker vessels, Paul says, meaning physically weaker. God specifically directs their care by fathers and brothers, husbands and sons. We see that God desires women not to be unprotected. So widows in the Bible are seen as women to be protected, to be highly valued. And they should be highly valued in every church. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate in verses 3 through 16, is how to do that. How do, you, how do you care for these widows? We have widows in our church. We should be running to care for them. Every need that we can find. You need to know, first of all, I think it's context, that all through the scriptures, God has declared a special love and a care for widows, for the disadvantaged, widows, orphans, poor Sojourners, travelers, it's a constant message of the Bible to care for orphans and widows. And God says again and again that if you don't do this, number one, you're under condemnation, and number two, I've got their back. I'm watching out for them. In Deuteronomy, we learn that tithes were to be given to support widows. So the early church is trying to fulfill this duty to support widows. We also read that when olives are harvested, when the fields are harvested for wheat, they were to leave a little bit around the edges. Why? So that the widows, the poor, can come and pick it up and, and not starve. But widows are specifically mentioned. God says that if you do this, God will bless the work of your hands. God shows a great concern for a widow's protection in marriage as well. The marriage laws, when a woman's husband died, do you know what was supposed to happen? The husband's brother, if he was unmarried, was supposed to marry the widow. Not just to carry on the brother's name and lineage, but to care for this woman who's been left alone. And if he was married, it came down to the next of kin until someone would marry the woman. We see this in the story of Ruth and Boaz. You remember that. Boaz said, wait, there's one more guy. He's ahead of me. He's before me. I need to see if he wants to marry you first. And he didn't. So Boaz was the one. And God reserves very harsh judgment for those who would take advantage of a widow or not care for a widow. 
Deuteronomy 27:19. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Isaiah 1:17. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Do you see the compassion that God is directing his church to have for those who are who are oppressed? in some way, disadvantaged by life in some way. Great compassion should be on our hearts. Why? Psalm 68.5 says it. God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. This is God in his holy dwelling. God describes himself in so many ways throughout scriptures. But to call himself a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. This is striking. It's astounding. He's naming his name. And he says, this is who I am. So it isn't surprising when Jesus comes to the earth, he also has a great affection for and a desire to care for widows. Remember, he rebuked the Pharisees for not caring for widows. He said, you devour widows' homes at a pretense. When he saw a widow whose only son had just died, he went and healed the man, brought him back back to life because Luke says he was moved with compassion for her. He and the disciples were watching people bring money and put it into the treasury and a poor widow came and it says she put in the last two coins she had to live on. And he praised this poor widow. And it's hard not to forget when Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were two specific people that he cared about enough to mention. He cared about the thief hanging on the cross next to him who was seeking salvation. And then to John, he says, this is my mother. Care for her. He's caring, showing special care, even on the cross for this widow who was his mother. So with all this as context, you can understand the strong language used by the apostles when they mention care for widows in the church. It's, it, it kind of took me back when I read that those who don't do their duty to their family are worse, worse than unbelievers. I kind of was shocked. He wasn't talking about adulterers or, or homosexuals or some, some ancient and... Um, well-recognized sin, murderers or something else. He says those who don't care for their own families, meaning widows in their families, are worse than unbelievers. This shocked me. But let's get into the text a little bit more. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. So that seems strange. Isn't every woman whose husband has died a widow? Yes. But what does he mean by truly widows? Well, he gives us the answer to this question in the following verses. And when he says honor, he's, he's not talking as much about just the honor you show someone who uh, deserves honor. That word is also used to mean providing for. And later he talks about enrolling on the list of widows. People were enrolled on a list of widows to be cared for exclusively by the church. 
So what does he mean by truly widows? These are the ones who are supposed to be put on the list, enrolled on the list for care. What's truly a widow? Well, the first thing we see in verse 9 is that these were old women. Old by that standard. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. In the first century, 60 years was very old. So we see that there are truly widows if they're old. In other words, they can't be expected to remarry. And they're faithful to their husbands. They were the, the wife of one husband. They weren't adulterers. Secondly, we see in verse 4, they're truly widows if they have no family that can care for them. This is verse 4 and verse 8 and verse, verse 16, where Paul says, if they have family to care for them, the family should do their duty and take care of them. The expectation is that families would provide that service. Verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return for their parents. This is pleasing in the sight of God. So certainly we see that parents are supposed to, in Scripture, provide an inheritance for their children. But here it's, it's, it's both ways, isn't it? Especially a widow. The children should go, show their godliness by caring for this woman. Verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and worse is worse than an unbeliever. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's doing what James does later and Christ does as well. To claim to love God, to be a Pharisee on the outside, to look really good, and yet in your heart you're actually not living as a Christian. You're not caring for those of your own household. You're reflecting the true status of your heart. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. And I think we all need to take this warning to our hearts. Uh, we kind of touched on it in Sunday school a little bit as well. First of all, yes, we all want to do as much as we can to care for widows and the needy in our families and in our church. But secondly, we, mean we should never presume that our faith can live apart from our actions. And faith without works truly is dead. There's no faith without repentance. There's no saving grace without a changed life. Many of us, indeed I would think all of us, know the truth of the gospel, but knowledge is not salvation. The evidence of your regeneration is your good works. Part of it, your godly life. You remember in Ephesians 2, the most explicit statement of being saved by grace. You've been saved by grace, not by works, so that no man can boast. The very next sentence, For you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, this, this scripture, when I read it, I've read it before, but it was unexpected that Paul would say something so incredibly harsh about people who refuse to care for their families. He's just doing what he's always done, only this is a specific instance of talking about widows and care for your family. But there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, a private Christian, the person who worships God in his own way. This, this doesn't exist. Faith in Jesus is always accompanied 
by a life of repentance. We who are in Christ know this. We're always on our knees. We're always repenting. We're always trying to serve God. We're always trying to love the body. So a practical result of our regeneration is going to be that we want to honor and care for those who are hurting and oppressed and needy in our own families and in our churches. So, true widows are old and faithful. They don't have family that can care for them. And we see in verse 10 that they are people who are true Christians. They bless the church with their lives. They have a reputation for good works. They brought up children. They've shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. In other words, this is a Christian woman. If the church is going to provide for your needs, it should be providing for Christians. To be enrolled as a widow, to be supported by the church in this way. And again, you can only imagine the false teachers must have really shaken things up. They must have really confused and deceived so many people for Paul to be saying something like this. But the reality is the same for all of us. We all in this church should live like true believers. We should all have a reputation for good works, not just widows who are looking for care. But the false teachers had surprised, confused, twisted the goodness of the gospel of grace. Now we in our church have no widows who need support like that. We don't have widows who need us just to devote a budget item to pay their rent and to buy their food, thankfully. If we did, I imagine we would try to help them in that way. None are destitute. But the principle remains. We are to honor and care for widows, and it's a high privilege for us to do so. It's a great privilege to care for those who have lost their husbands. Many of our shut-ins are are widows. They cannot come. Their husbands are gone. So if you see a need that a widow has, I mean, if you see a need in the body, you should go meet it. You should be racing the deacons to meet that need. But especially a widow. Run to them in great tenderness and love and care. Not to get some heavenly reward, but because you love them. Do this. Thirdly, we see warnings and encouragements in this particular text. Verses 6, 11, 12, 13, and 15. We have warnings to widows that apply to all of us. The self-indulgent widow, Paul says, is already dead while she lives. In other words, a person who, for Jesus, life is just all about herself. And Jesus is on the periphery somewhere. She lives a self-indulgent life. Again, this is for all of us. Verses 11 and 12, he talks about the young widow who abandons her faith and runs off and gets married. And Of course, he's not saying that young widows should not remarry. He tells them later to do so. But he's talking about a young person whose passions draw them away from the church, away from Christ. Like the seed falling among the thorns, it springs up really quickly and then the worries and worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it. And then in verses 13 to 15, of course, we see the warning 
To these widows who are not married, again, it's for all of us who have free time, not to be idlers, not to be going about from house to house, gossiping, busybodies, saying the things that we should not. Again, I'm thinking of false teachers who have probably convinced these women that they need to go from house to house and convince people about things that are only causing dissension. In the next chapter, he talks about dissension and things that cause dissension. He's saying, stop, you should not be that person. You should not be stirring discord. Rather, Paul says, a young woman should, a young widow should remarry and have children and manage their households and not give the enemy an occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. You remember two chapters ago in the letter, he said that women would be saved through childbearing. What does he mean? Well, this is kind of the context. He's not saying that there's a special grace for a woman who has children or cares for a family. He's pointing women to do what God's created them to do, to manage their homes, to focus their lives on their families. Satan is after every church. He's after every family. He wants division. He wants slander, disrepute, death. And so Paul warns these young widows in these churches. And he warns all of us to guard our tongues, to show great love. But then there's also some encouragement for us and for widows. Verse 5, he says that a widow, someone who is left all alone, has set her hope on God. And continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So that's not just for widows, of course. It's for all of us when we're separated from the body of Christ. When we actually can't come to church. Or when our physical condition uh, keeps us from being a greater part of the body than we would like. Paul says that we should set our hope on God. And pray for the saints. This is a wonderful privilege and duty given to all of us who are in this position. The church is our family. We should spend our time praying for them. But I want to conclude by looking at the greatest of all the warnings. We've already touched on it. The warning that those who don't care for their own families are worse than unbelievers. Again, I was shaken when I read it and began to study The conclusion is God calls us all to a living faith. To care for each other. To love the body of Christ. In James 1.22, James says almost the same thing. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. What do you think he says there? Like if I weren't to, re- to read the rest of it and you didn't know this passage already, you might think religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To get trained and go be a missionary in a remote part of the world. To, to share the gospel on the street. To serve at the soup kitchen every night. It's not what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself 
unstained from the world. This is virtually the same lesson that Paul's teaching. But it shocks me that widows are mentioned, orphans are mentioned. Paul says if you don't care for those in your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. In other words, if your life doesn't match your confession, it's not real. James says the same thing. If you're just a hearer of the word, you, you soak it all up, but you don't actually apply it to your life. You're deceiving yourself. And then he gives examples, very practical examples, of how you can judge your own heart. Do you bridle your tongue? Do you abstain from worldliness? Do you care for orphans and widows and needy people? You might say, well, that's just the apostles. I mean, Jesus certainly didn't teach anything like that. Matthew chapter 25, I mean, it's all through Jesus' teaching. I'll start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you? drink and when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you and the king will answer truly I say to you as you did it to the least of these my brothers you did it to me and then those on his left he he basically says the opposite and he says depart to eternal punishment I had someone who asked me this just, I don't know, a few weeks ago, months ago maybe. I used to go to a church where everyone left always happy. And you seem to kind of, you try to dive down into my heart every week. And you make me uncomfortable. That's only part of my goal in preaching the Word of God. I want to provide as much comfort as I can for those in Christ. You should feel the comfort of God when you hear these words. But for those who are not in Christ, you should feel very uncomfortable. You should feel very uneasy. Both are what I'm striving for. And why is it such a burden on my soul? Because I love you. I love each and every one of you. Wouldn't a loving pastor try to tell the truth instead of just making you leave feeling happy? And especially with my training, my whole career, my whole life before this, it's all risk management. If you can remember, should I even do this? I will. So imagine an X and a Y axis, and you have like some kind of chart. And down here on the horizontal axis, it's least likely to happen, most likely to happen. And on the vertical axis, it's least destructive, most destructive. So what you do is you plot the things that are probably going to happen, and anything that's up here in this corner that's the most likely to happen And most destructive, that's what you have to address first. So I don't know where we are, where each of your hearts are on that particular scale. But certainly there are some in that top right corner where the most likely thing is you're not 
with Christ at this moment, and it's the most destructive thing of all. So the most loving thing I can do is to read God's word to you and explain it. Christ says to those on the right, Come, those blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Christ acknowledges, before he goes into what faith looks like, he acknowledges that it's by grace. You've been blessed by my Father. You've been chosen by my Father. And the kingdom has been prepared for you from the foundation. You've been saved by grace. But notice also that when he goes through all the things that show forth true faith, the people that had the faith don't even recognize that they've done it. Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you a widow and go help you? When did these things happen? They don't even recognize that they're doing it. They've been chosen and made part of God's family. And the natural result of it is that they just love. It's an impulsive, instinctive love for the body of Christ. And we know that he's talking about the church. Yes, we love the world, but my brothers is a very special word. Christ never calls wicked people his brothers. He never calls the world his brothers. He calls the church his brothers. When you've done the least of these things to, to the least of my brothers, you've done it for Jesus. And of course, Jesus railed against prideful hypocrites in, in the Pharisaical world. They look good on the outside, but they're full of greed and wickedness. They devoured widows' homes. What Jesus is teaching is that the Christian will follow Christ. Not just in our service, but in our suffering. We're going to suffer when we live like Christ. Paul makes the same point as does James. Those who are Christians are going to love others in the church. They're going to look like Christ more and more every day. But the goats, the goats make me shudder. They're cursed and sent to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What misery. What fear. The fact that it was prepared for the devil and his angels actually gives us courage, though. As long as someone is alive and breathing, you have an opportunity for repentance. You have an opportunity to turn your life to Christ. So, lover of Jesus, be encouraged. Saints of God, be comforted. If you're caring and loving for the body of Christ in this way, then well done, Christ will say. Well done, good and faithful servant. Again, you probably don't even know you're doing it because we're not striving. This is not how we're saved. It's a result of our salvation. But if you look at your heart and you know that you live an indulgent life, you're, like Paul said, you're already dead. Your life is all about yourself and your own comforts. You look good on the outside. But you show no practical love to each other or to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Turn your heart to Jesus this morning. I was talking to a brother yesterday. He's taken over a new position. It's in a position of terrible importance in the Air Force. And he said, I think there might be a brother across the street. Just one brother, one Christian man across the street from his house. He was so thrilled. I said, how do you know he's a brother? And he said, he loves Jesus. He loves the man from Nazareth. And you can't fake that. 
If you could say, I love the man from Nazareth with, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to please him. I want to serve him. I can't wait to see him. Then praise God. But if that is a foreign concept to you, turn your life to Christ today. He calls everyone to come to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We know he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. If there's part of you that wants to do this, do it today. For he alone can give you rest. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that you care for even the least of these. You care for orphans, for widows, for those who are sick and disadvantaged, for those who are poor. And you've called us to care for them as well. And for those of us who really do not know what it means to love the man from Nazareth, to love the man Jesus Christ, we pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would change our hearts, that you would turn our souls to you. Lord, may we not only love you well, but may we love each other well. May every widow, every hurt person, May every elderly person, every shut-in, every sick person in our church, every orphan, know the love of God as displayed through the body of Christ. We pray this all for your glory, for your majesty, for your power, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.